We're in week four of this At the Movies series, and it's, it's, it's the idea of using movies as a springboard to get into conversation about God. This year, we're talking about epic movies, and so we've, we've covered some real epic ones. Patrick did uh, Lord of the Rings. We'd, uh, uh, we did Harry Potter. We did Star Wars. Those are some epic, epic stories. The reason that the epic story really captures our attention, I think, is because bec- there's this huge scope of something going on, yet... The little man or the little woman matters in the story. Uh, you, you think about, about uh, you know, the huge story of Lord of the Rings, which you've got this little bitty hobbit, you know, who matters. The story of God is the same way. It's epic. It's huge. It's eternal. But your story matters. And not only that, but the leader, the ruler, the hero of the story stepped in to your little story so that you would matter, so that you could have a role in the big story to be played we're going each week by week revealing the movie, and it's kind of a fun game we play when we do this series, like, what's the movie going to be? And so this week, I'm ready and excited to reveal this week's movie. This week, we're doing a story that's near and dear to my heart, The Chronicles of Narnia. You guys know that story? Actually, it started out as books, like many great stories. Uh, they originate as a book. The Chronicles of Narnia began actually as a seven-book series. I read it for the first time uh, as a, a child. I love them. I'm actually a big reader uh, now, and I think I can attribute that largely to the Chronicles of Narnia. Let me tell you why. As a kid, we did a lot of traveling. We had family all over the place. And my dad, for a large chunk of my young uh, childhood, he was the preacher at a church that was two hours, about two and a half hours away from where we live. I guess none of the churches in our town like wanted him to preach there because we had to drive like a really long way. So like every weekend, we had round trip four to five hours of driving. And this is before the amazing invention of the minivan and the portable DVD player. Player, okay, so my mom had to be created to keep me and my brother from killing each other in the back seat. So she did. She played games, and we had all kinds of games. But one thing she did was she would read to us, and I'll never forget when she read the Chronicles of Narnia to us. It just opens up this world, this fantasy world. If you don't know the story, um, we're going to get into some of the outline of it. But let me tell you a little bit about this guy who wrote it. C.S. Lewis is his name. Clive Staples Lewis. His friends called him Jack. Quite a character, British guy. When you're British, you automatically get like 10 extra ken- cool points, you know, as an author. And so that's his whole deal. He wrote in a lot of genres, uh, mostly theological and philosophical. Genius of a man. He's probably one of the most quoted people in history out of like Benjamin Franklin and, and Jesus. Uh, I made that up completely, but I think it's true. Like the, he, people were always quoting C.S. Lewis. Um, but the thing that he might be the most famous for worldwide is the Chronicles of Narnia. The stories were so good that they were made into three, so far, really good movies. Uh, I think they're good. You might not like them, but I love them, and, which is why today we're looking at The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. I stuttered through that. The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, which is the first of the series. Let me tell you the story of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. We start out by meeting four British children. We've got a picture of them here. Their names are Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. And the children were sent, they live in, in, in Britain, and they were sent to live in the countryside in their crazy uncle's mansion. This is their crazy uncle, Kirk. Uh, he's a pretty important character to the story. Uh, the reason they were sent to live with their uncle was because it was World War II, and there was bombing happening in the cities, and so the children were often kind of shipped off to live with relatives in the country so they'd be more safe. Well, one day, they're in this mansion with, with, in their crazy uncle's mansion, who they don't get to see very often, and the, the bossy housekeeper, her name is Miss McCready. Uh, here's a picture of her here. They, they're, they're like getting on her nerves and so she's trying to hunt them down so they're hiding from her so they step into this 
wardrobe, like a closet, but kind of a piece of furniture. It's not something we have a lot of today, but they get into this wardrobe to hide. And I love several times uh, it says in the book they didn't clut- shut the door all the way because everyone knows that you don't shut the door on yourself when you get in a wardrobe, right? And so they get into this wardrobe and they hide. But here's what happens. While they're in the wardrobe, they realize they've also accidentally stepped into a portal, a magical portal into another like universe, another world called Narnia. When they get through the back side of the wardrobe, they're in a forest, and it's covered in ice and snow, and it's cold. And they explore a little bit, and they learn that the land is called Narnia. Now, a really important part of the story is that in Narnia, there's a powerful, powerful person. She's known as the White Witch. Here's a picture of her here. And the reason it's cold and icy is because the world is under her control. And she is causing it to be cold and icy and always winter, but never what? Never Christmas, which is really the whole point of winter anyway, is Christmas. That's why most of you moved here from New Jersey, because who wants to live in Christmas, I mean, winter all the time? And with no Christmas, what's the point, right? And so it's not, and they're not allowed to have fun. And anytime anyone does have fun or they celebrate or they have joy in their life, the witch comes along with her magic scepter and she turns them into stone. And she brings a stone statue and she puts it in her front yard like a statue in a museum. And people are terrified. Narnia's a pretty bleak place. So we've got the witch we got the wardrobe, but there's a lion. When the children come into Narnia, they hear uh, rumors about this very powerful creature, a lion named Aslan. Aslan is the true king of Narnia, and he's been gone for a little while, and the witch got out of control. But the rumors that are going around is that he can come, he can beat the witch, and he can bring back, bring back the spring. Now, when people hear this, they have one of two reactions. One is a, a reaction of hope. Finally, finally, I can take off my winter you know, long johns and, and I can have a birthday party for my kids and it can be fun. The other reaction, though, is doubt. It's like, yeah, I, I'm not sure I want to challenge the witch. I, I don't want to be turned into stone. I don't know about you guys, but I, for me, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And this is the world that these children walk into. It's right here, and it's a thought that we meet Aslan. And, and I want to read for you a quote from... Uh, from Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver, uh, I got to tell you something about Narnia, by the way. I, I think most of you probably know the story, but if you don't, one thing that's cool about Narnia is that the creatures there aren't human. They're intelligent animals that talk, and they are the main creatures in the world. And so one of the first people that a couple of the kids meet is these character, this character, Mr. Beaver. And, and he's, kind of a, he's kind of a smart guy, and he knows the history of Narnia and what happens. And so when they start talking about Aslan, they say, well, who is this Aslan? And Mr. Beaver's talking to the character, Susan, and, and uh Mr. Beaver starts out, and he says, well, Aslan's a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, that's a great introduction. If you, got, you guys who like Narnia, you're like, yeah, Mr. Beaver, tell a story. Okay, so, that, so that's the situation. It's right there at that thought. Is he safe? 
No, he's not safe, but he's good, and he's the king. It's at that thought that I want to get into our teaching time today. Normally in this series, um, basically we set up the movie, we set up the idea, you get the character, and then like I step completely away from the movie. I'm like, all right, now let's talk about what the Bible says. The cool thing about Narnia is I don't even have to do that. When C.S. Lewis wrote this story, he was intentionally using it to do exactly what we're doing today, to tell the story about God in a creative way. Sometimes people would ask uh, Lewis, like, hey, is... is um, does Aslan, does he represent God or, or Jesus or anything? And Lewis was funny. He was kind of a quirky British fellow. And he said, uh, he said this. He said, well, Aslan is what Christ might become if there really were a world like Narnia. He kind of dodged the question. He was like, no, no, no. Aslan isn't like a type of Christ. He's not a metaphor. Aslan is Jesus if there was a magical world named Narnia. So yeah, the story is the story of God interacting with the world if it was a magical world. I love it because as we read the story, we get to step out of our own reality for just a minute, and we get to look into the world of the white witch, and we get to go, I can relate to that. It's cold. There's not joy sometimes. There's fear. There's doubt. But what if God could come into the world and make a difference? What if he could show up and make the winter go away, and what if he could bring back the spring and end the rule of evil? And as we look through the book of, through the movie of Narnia, we get to see from an outside perspective what it might be like if Jesus came into our world and made a difference. Today we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at one kind of unlikely character from the story. Um, there are four children in the story. I said Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. And as they come into Narnia, they actually kind of come in at different times and meet different people. Uh, Lucy comes in first and she meets this guy named Tumnus. He's a pretty cool story. And then the other two come in with Lucy and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and that's pretty cool. But there's a time when Edmund comes in. And the first person Edmund meets is not Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who tell him all about Aslan. He actually runs into the white witch herself. And it's kind of eerie and it's kind of weird because he, he kind of comes upon her in the woods and she's on this big sleigh that she rides. And she notices that he's a human boy and there's these prophecies in Narnia and it's, I won't get into it, but it's a big deal. They don't have humans there. And so when she sees this human boy, she realizes that she needs to become friends with him. Her goal is actually to kill him because she knows that through the, the children, Aslan will be able to have rule and all this stuff. But she, she calls Edmund over. And she does something there. She introduces him to something. I, I want to pause there, and I want to give you a chance to look at your Bibles so you can get them ready. If you've got a Bible today, we're going to be uh, in a couple of different places in the New Testament of the Bible, which is that part in the back third of our Bibles. It's about, it's about Jesus and the early church. Uh, we're going to start out in the book of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Pretty cool story. He actually didn't believe in Jesus at all. He was skeptical of Jesus's. Uh, claimed to be the son of God and all this stuff until after the resurrection. And he was like, oh, I totally believe in you now. You're my half-brother and I saw you do things no human could do. So James writes this story. Um, and, and he writes the, the book of James and it's kind of a teaching. It's a wisdom book and it teaches us a lot of things that we can know about God. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. If you don't have, uh, we don't need it on the screen just yet. Uh, if you don't have um, a Bible of your own, we've got some scattered among the seats. Feel free to take one home with you today if you don't have one or to also be on the screen behind me. But before we get into James, I want to ask you a question, okay? This is the question. Have you ever done something so bad that you just wish that you would do anything to go back and undo it? Just, just think about it. Maybe one thing, two things, like 20 things. You said something you wish you hadn't said. You went a place that you wish you'd never gone. 
you met a person that you wish you'd never met, right? A couple of months ago, it was in April, we did a series about regrets. Remember starting over? The video was the guy like a roller painting a board, and it was, uh, it was about starting over life beyond regrets. And there's these kinds of regrets we have in life, things that we, we do which we wish, we wish we hadn't done. We call those regrets of action, and things that we, we didn't do that we wish we did do. Those are reaction, regrets of inaction. And then there's these things that happen to us that we wish didn't happen to us. We call those regrets of reaction. You might remember that. The thing about this whole regrets thing, there's something I wish I could go back and change and undo. The thing about that is, isn't it the story of our lives? Like the story of my life tends to be, uh, there, there's like mountaintops and valleys, and it's just really me kind of skipping from one to the other, and I kind of look back, and, and so we ask this question, how you doing? So it's either great or it was a bad week. It's never like, oh, I'm kind of middle today, you know? Could go either way. We'll have to see what happens, right? We have these series of regrets. I want to kind of place that thought in your mind because we're going to zoom into the character of Edmund in a minute. He's about to do something that he's going to severely regret. And the reason we choose Edmund out of all the other characters in the book, in the movie, I keep talking about the book, the movie in the book, the story of Narnia, is because I believe that his character is the one we can relate to the most. The Bible teaches a lot about these regrets whether we did them or didn't do them or they were done to us, the, the thing that tends to tie all these regrets together is sin. Sin is any time we miss the mark of what God wants to do with our lives. The Bible teaches us in the book of Romans that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's plan for their life, his purpose for our life. The biblical truth I want us to see is that God does love you and he does have a purpose for your life. But sometimes we miss the mark. We do sinful things. Sin is not fair. I'm going to tell you why I say that. Because it's bad for us, but it's so good. It's like a Big Mac, you know what I'm saying? You're like, man, I just need two Big Macs. And like, that will be fine, right? You know, it's the, the classic thing. I want a Big Mac and a Diet Coke, right? It's, it's that thing. Sin is like that. It's, it's a bait and switch. You know, it's sinful to lash out at somebody in anger. It's sinful. You shouldn't do that. But man, it feels so good. You cut me off in traffic, I'm going to give you the finger and say a bunch of words and then tell my kids, yeah, don't ever say that. I was just testing those words out, right? Like you blow your top and you just, it's, it, but it feels good to be angry. It's sinful to take stuff that isn't yours. But it feels good to have it. And the more you do it, the more you get used to it. Sometimes you get a little high off of it. It, it feels good. It's, it's, it's sinful to sleep around and have that type of intimacy with someone outside of marriage. It's sinful. And it feels good, right? Everyone's doing it. Kind of helps you test the water a little bit, right? God, God didn't plan it that way, but it, it's sinful to lie. But it feels good to get yourself out of trouble, right? It's, it's not fair. It's not fair. But here's the problem with sin. The problem with sin is sin never just delivers on the promise. It, never, it, it feels good to be angry, but guess what? Being angry doesn't change anything. That dude is not going to learn how to use his turn signal, guys. It's not going to happen. No matter how much you yell at him out your window, he's not going to become a better driver because of it, and you're the one stuck in the pain. It feels good to steal, but guess what? You still don't own it. It's not yours, right? It doesn't deliver on the promise. It, it feels good, sexual immorality, sleeping around, all that stuff. It, it feels good for a moment, but guess what? It leaves a pit of brokenness at the end of the day, and the relationship isn't genuine. It's only superficial and physical. It feels good to lie. But lying only leads to more lies, and if you've ever been in that roller coaster, you know it's not worth it. God has a plan for our lives, and it doesn't involve us sinning. It involves us living beyond that. When the kids get to Narnia, and Edmund meets this witch, some crazy thing happens. Uh, she, she, she calls him over to her sled, 
And she offers him two things. I want you guys to hear this, everybody. The first thing she offers him is this, uh, this weird British candy called Turkish Delights. Uh, when, you, when you watch the movie, you're like, I think I'd like some Turkish, Turkish Delights. And then you go like, find some at the store, and you're like, I don't think I want to eat this. I don't, that's my experience. It's like if gummy bears and marshmallows had a baby. It's, it was, it's weird. Um, but, the, but he has it, and he loves it. He's like, oh, it's so good. And they're, they're enchanted candies, okay? And she tells him. I'm going to get you some more of these candies. And all you can think about is these candies. That's the one thing she offers him. The other thing she offers him is this. She says, listen, I want you to lead your brothers and your sisters to me, okay? She's got plans to destroy them. But she said, I want you to lead your brothers and your sisters to me because they need to meet me. I'll give them some candy too. He's like, yeah, but I can get some more candy too, right? He's like, yeah, you can get some more. She said, there's a room full of candy. You can have the candy. Bring me your brothers and sisters. And he says, okay, okay, I'll do that. She said, if you do that, this is the other thing she offers. I will give you power. She says, I'll make you the king of Narnia. Yeah, I'll be the queen. You'll be the king. You can rule. He's like, yeah, but is there candy? I just want to make sure there's going to be candy while I'm king. Yeah, there's candy. There's candy. Bring me your siblings. Here's the first lesson that Narnia teaches us. If you're a note taker, you won't have to write this down, but you might want to. This is very simple. Evil is real. That's the first lesson. Evil is real, and it can be very appealing Okay, I told you to look at James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Let's, let's read this little teaching, and, and I want you to think about these candies that Edmund gets as we hear this. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt people. But every person, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Every year, my kids do me a huge favor in October, the end of the month. It's huge. It's wonderful. Uh, we do this weird thing. We, we dress our kids up in these uh, costumes, and then we'll go to like a rich neighborhood in town, and then I will send them door to door asking people for candy. You guys do that? It's the weirdest tradition ever. Halloween, it's like trick or treat, give me candy. And we just, it's like, okay, fine, come to my house. I have, I'm obligated to give you candy. Um, and it's a weird thing, but the, the, uh, they have a really good mom. Uh, and so when they get home, their mom's like, well, you know, just sort the candy thing because razor blades from the 80s or something. I don't know why we sort the candy, uh, but we do that. And then, and so we sort the candy and their mom's like, okay, you can have like 10 pieces of candy. Now I see before me 50 pounds of candy. <laughs> I'm like, one, two, 10. That should be plenty for me. And so then what I do, the kids go to bed, and then I begin to, to eat candy. Any other dads do this? We call it the dad tax. It's legally okay, okay? Um, and so uh, I, I eat the candy, and I love, I love candy. I'm a candy-holic, okay? I need to go to a group. If you could help me, it would be good. So I get the Skittles, and I get going. But about the ninth box of Tiny Nerds, you know what I'm talking about? Those things go down. Just little nerd shots, you know? It's so good. But about the ninth one, you're like, okay, I see. But I haven't had a Twizzler yet, you know? <laughs> and you're like going at it. Here's the thing. Okay, this is a stupid story, but it's so real. I wanted to give you a visual. That's what sin's like for us. And we look at it, it's like, hmm. I just need it for just a minute. But then you're nine in, and you realize you have made a mistake. <laughs> I got to ask you a question. Is there some candy in your life that pulls you away from God? Eye candy, ear candy body candy, physical candy? Is it mental candy, emotional candy? Is it stuff that just at this moment, you're like, I just need that. That will get me by. This is the thing about these things in our life. They will never fill us. They will never deliver on their promises. Actually, they will make us sick. 
And according to James, it, it says that when we get into these little things in our life and they start to get into our, we, we start saying, oh man, it was their fault, it was their fault. And we start pushing, pushing, pushing. But this is what James says. It says that after the desire has conceived, and this first thing, it says that first of all, sin happens when our own evil desires drag us away and entice us. Where does sin come from? The seeds from sin begin in our brain, our own self. I think I'd like that. And then we start to water that seed and cultivate it and, and nourish it and churn the soil a little bit. And the next thing you know, it says this, this metaphor of birth is it's, it's, it's serious. The desire has conceived and then it gives birth to sin. What do we do? We act out. We do the thing. But when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Let's get back to Edmund's story. I love the story of Narnia because I can keep going back to it. It's a continual, endless analogy because the story of Edmund is where the real lesson about Jesus lands for us today. Edmund didn't try to, Edmund does go to his siblings and he tries to convince them to come to the White Witch, but they've already met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who are charming beavers, by the way. And he meets them and, and uh, they're, like, they're like, Aslan's the king, Aslan's the king, the White Witch is bad. He's like, well, who are you to say the White Witch is bad? She's, she's good, there's candy. <laughs> and He's like, I want you to come meet her with me. And then eventually she sne- he, they, he sneaks away. He goes, and he goes to the White Witch himself. He's like, well, my sisters and my brother, they won't come. And he goes, and he walks through the snow, and he goes to the witch's castle, and he knocks on the door. But listen, this time when he knocks on the door and he gets to meet her, she has changed. She's not the sweet lady anymore that's giving him candy. She is angry at him. She said, I sent you to get your, your siblings, and you come back empty-handed. And he's like, uh, but, but can I have some more of that candy? Huh? He literally says that. That's part of the story. And she doesn't give him more candy. You know what she does? She throws him in the dungeon. And she makes him her slave. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You know what death is by definition? It's separation. It's separation in our life. When we die physically, we're separated from the people we love. It's spiritual death. It's separation from God. We alienate ourselves from God. For us, going against what God desires for our lives never pays off. It never delivers. It only leads to alienation from God. And I don't say lightly what it leads to. It leads to death. Not physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God. You ever felt that separation? Like sometimes it feels like guilt. <sighs> I should have done that. That's, that's part of that. That's, that. that's that gap. That's that chasm. But it doesn't always feel like guilt. Sometimes it feels like a longing if you're here today, maybe you've not done church before, you've only been here for a little while, um, and you're hearing this, you're like, I, I don't know, well, you're kind of coming at me with a lot of stuff right now, man. Um, let me just ask any of us, have we ever had that feeling of like longing or like, what's, what's the purpose of it all? What's the peace? What's, it comes to us in a lot of different ways. Some people have described it like searching for answers or, or meaning or purpose. Sometimes it's like, I can't put my finger on it, but life's just not right. You know what that is? That's that alienation from God. God, the life giver. God, the light bringer. But instead, we're living in death and darkness. And what's sad is a lot of times we don't even realize it because we're surrounded by 50 pounds of candy and we're like, oh, maybe I just need one of these instead. I haven't had a Twizzler yet. And we go looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. And other times, you know exactly what it is. Edmund's in the dungeon. Eventually, he becomes a slave. There's a whole story and it goes on. But Edmund quickly realizes that he chose the wrong team (laughs) and he regrets it immediately the promises of candy will never deliver 
and the allure of life on our own without God, it can't sustain us. So when we come to church, uh, you know, there's so many good things we could talk about. And we do. We talk about a lot of these things. We talk about, I mean, if you just come every week, if, you, if you, this is your first time, keep coming. We talk about a lot of different things. But the thing we're talking about today, none of that other stuff matters until we can figure this thing out. You follow me? Like, unless we can bridge the gap between me and God's love, the, the other stuff, five steps to a better marriage, and I, and I want to uh, have better this and better that, and understand the Bible and the stories of the Old Testament. Like, none of that matters unless we can understand this gap. But here's the thing. God has a plan for that. Most of us have heard it over and over again, so don't tune me out. It's called the gospel, Okay. But don't tune me out because it's for all of us, even if we've already heard it. And maybe you haven't heard it already. It's the idea that God himself wants a relationship with us. And so the way that he did that was he came to earth himself in the form of Jesus. And he made a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to bridge the gap between him and God. I want to tell you, if you've already kind of like knew that already, maybe you've already made the decision to become a Christian, but you still have those moments where you're like, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching. I'm going to tell you what, maybe it's just because you need to remember the bridge has been made and you need to find your way back to it. So our friend Edmund, he's messed up. He's done for. The witch has already decided that she's going to kill him. In fact, she tries to at one point. The only person that can help him is Aslan, the lion. But Edmund's a nobody. Like, he just got here. He just, like, he like, I was walking in a wardrobe, and now I'm here, and I'm really, I don't know, like, which way is east. Do y'all have east here? I don't know. Like, he, so I can't call on Aslan, because I don't even really know him. And by the way, if I did call on him, I'm kind of a traitor, because I chose to be on the witch's team. So he's up a creek, and the only person that can help him is Aslan. Uh, and, but here's the thing. Aslan, un, unbeknownst to Edmund, Aslan does know Edmund. He knows him very well. In fact, the brothers and sisters, they eventually find their way to Aslan, and they go to him, and they say, listen, we think our brother went to be with the witch. Um, can you help us? Can you help us? We need him to be rescued. Well, you would think, like, if you went to the king of, of, of a fantasy world, like if you ever accidentally fall through your closet and end up there, you would think that, like, if there was a king, he would be like, oh, no, I have regal duties to attend to. We're about to do all this over here. I'm sorry that your brother's lost, but let's think about the big picture. You would think that would be what the king would say. But Aslan has this absurd response. He said, yeah, I got a plan. Here's what I'll do. Um, Peter, I'm gonna leave you in charge. Dude's like 10 years old, okay? I, that's, that's children's books for you. But he's like, I'm gonna leave you in charge. <laughs> and I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna take care of Aslan. This is what he does, is he goes to the witch Aslan does. And he says, listen, witch, I, I want to make, make you a deal. You, you, just, you just let go of Edmund, and you can have me instead. I'm the one you want anyway, right? I'm the one that can take you out. I'm the one that can end your reign. So I'll tell you what, you just, you just take me instead. Edmund goes free, and everybody's really sad about it. There's a really sad scene that happens right after that. The witch gathers around this ancient place called the Stone Table. And it's where official things are done. Uh, and, and it's where the old magic lives. And so she says, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this lion to the Stone Table. And all these ghouls and goblins and creepy crawlies are all around. And they take the lion and they tie him up and they throw him on the table. He's powerful. He's Aslan. He could bite their heads off. But he lets them do it. And they shave all of his fur off and his beautiful mane and they make him this mangy looking little cat. They spit on him. 
They cuss at him. And then the witch takes this dagger and she drives it through his heart. It's a sad scene. The saddest part of all is that the little girl Lucy and her sister Susan happened to be walking through the woods that night. And they saw the whole thing. They were heartbroken. They were terrified, but there was nothing that they could do. You know, God had a plan. And it's absurd. And God said, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to trade places with you. You betrayed me, you're a traitor, you ate too much candy, whatever, pick your metaphor. We said, I tell you what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to take your place. You deserve the punishment, but I'm going to take the punishment. And they stripped him and they tied him up and they nailed him to a cross. And it was sad and there was people watching and there was nothing they could do. And he did it willingly. Now, in that story, you could just say, like a lot of weird bedtime stories, be like, yep, and uh, the end. Edmund was free. The coolest thing is, that's not what happened. There was something that the rest of the world didn't know. Let me read you one of the most powerful scriptures from the whole Bible. Listen to this. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul goes on, that's the author of this passage in Romans. He goes on to say in the next few verses that Jesus was, Jesus was willing to make the trade for us while we were still his enemies. While we were still living in treachery, sin, when it's fully conceived and is born, it gives birth to death in our lives. And death is so final. You've been to a funeral before? Like you don't plan an after party where you dance with the person that you are at their funeral. Like that, that's final. It's over. But Jesus, Jesus brings life. He takes our place and he gives us a chance to bring him glory. Instead of betrayal, which is what we bring him otherwise. And when we live for Jesus, this is the thing. He will do that for us again and again and again and again. And you betray him and he says, listen, are you on my side or not? And I give it to you again. It's forgiveness. It's grace. It's chance to start over. Because there is a deeper magic. That when someone who has committed no crime is willing to willingly sacrifice their self, death will be reversed. What a... What a cool way to see the story of Jesus. The most epic story ever told. I wrestled with this movie because and, and, I was like, I feel like if I did this movie, I would just be telling the story of Jesus raising from the dead. Then I was like, yeah, but that'd be a really good thing to talk about, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't that be something that we need to be reminded of? Because that's what matters most. Uh, Paul wants to make sure that we get it. He's the guy that we just read from him in Romans. And so we're going to skip ahead just a chapter. This is Romans chapter th uh, 6, verse 3. Because we left him at Jesus died for us, but it didn't stay dead. Verse 3, Romans 6, 3 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In order that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. 
For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you haven't been in the Bible much, and, and this is, you know, it can sound like, okay, that sounds like a legal jargon. jargon. It kind of is a legal jargon. It's like working out the law of God and life and death and paying for sin. So that's why it's like not super simple to say every single time. But what God's saying is, listen, if you are willing to basically lay down your life for Jesus, and I love how he says anyone who's been baptized into Christ has been baptized into his death. That's why we have this, this cool moment of baptism. When someone goes under the water, it's, it's, a, it's a symbolic representation of them saying, I am dying to my old self. And then when I come out, we're raised to walk in newness of life. It says if we die at a death like his, we surely be raised in a resurrection like his. And in that moment, we get to take part in that scene we just saw. But not in Narnia. In the world we live in, with our soul, with our life, the punishment for our sin that was supposed to bring us death was put on Jesus. And he slammed it. And he defeated death itself. I want to read you another passage from, uh, that Paul also wrote. Man, this was a big topic for Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is a long, long chapter. I'm just going to read three verses. Chapter 15, verses 55 through 58. Listen to this. This is like a chant. This is like a battle cry. It's like a pep rally. Where, old death, is your victory? Where, old death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, Lucy was ready to fight after that. Pulled our little sword. <laughs> What's she going to do? I got the victory. I'm going to fight on your side. This is the next part. Therefore, brothers and sisters, venture church family, husbands and wives, children, listen to this. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. After that table broke, Aslan ran back to the camp and guess who was there? Guess who was the first person he spoke to? Edmund. Why did Aslan do all that? For the one kid who just wanted candy. I said that was my favorite scene. This actually might be. After that, you see Edmund and Aslan go off to a field, and they have a conversation. You just see the conversation. And the brothers the brother and sisters are watching, and they're like, what are they talking about? Man, do you think he's yelling at him? Is he going to get spanking? Like, what's happening? Edmund's kind of looking somber. And, yes, sir, whatever. I don't know what he says. We don't know what he says. And then they all walk back, and they ask Aslan. They're like, what did you say? Aslan says, that's between me and him. All you need to know is he's forgiven. I, I, I don't know what you brought to the table with you this morning when you got to church. But maybe you need to go have a walk with the king. And say, look, I, I've done things I regret. Maybe you're a Christian already and you've done things you regret. Maybe you've never said, I want to be a Christian. You've never been baptized. You've never taken that step in your life. But you've done things you regret. Listen, you need to take a walk with the king. That's between you and him. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with the consequences. You might have to work through some stuff. You got some addiction you need to deal with. Yeah, you need to deal with that. You got some, what a problem. You got to deal with the problems. But as far as life and death goes and Jesus, he says, that's between, that's between me and him. Where are you on that? 
Where are you on that? I love this epic movie series because the, the most epic story ever told was the story that God came near. And he wants you to be a part of it. And so as you leave here today, don't leave without at least considering, do I need to have a talk with the king? What are the candies in my life that I need to put down? What is the sin that's delivering nothing but a lie? And am I willing to embrace the truth that God loves me? He's got a purpose and a plan for my life. Can I pray for you guys this morning? God, you are good. You're truly good. And man, I've just, I've indulged in too much candy myself. Um, The sin that so easily entangles. But God, you told me that I just need to turn to you time after time and time and again. I pray that as a family, we can be a group of people who's not so ashamed of our mistakes that we can't even bring them into the light. Lord, you tell us, bring it into the light, drag it into the light so that it'll be clear that we did it before you so that you can offer forgiveness. And so, Lord, help us to drag those things into the light. Lord, there's a lot of us in this room who are sitting on all kinds of different ends of that pendulum swing. And so wherever we are in that place, Lord, I pray that you would just come knock on our door and help us make the decision to have that talk with you, to make a decision to live for you. You are truly good, Lord. Thank you for the story of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.